You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom Abrocha, this is a Chuba Supoiskim special. We have been uh, examining the thought, the ideas, the Chubas of Rav Nota Greenblatt with the title Chayoyim Nota. And uh, this week, uh, I was uh, I reached out to my to my friend, uh, esteemed Rav Rav Michael Broid, and he had expressed some interest in in in, in speaking about Rav Nota's uh, psalkim, especially since he has a, he had a he has a personal connection to Rav Nota, and I want to thank him for uh, joining us to, to to present. I I should just want to say that um, we're dedicating the very much. I want to start, though, not by talking about the specific tshuva of Bishalakum, but about my um, my relationship with Rav Nata and where it comes from, and then we'll focus on this specific tshuva. It's no secret that Rav Nata traveled around the South for many years um, doing a variety of technical rabbinic things, and when I first moved to Atlanta in 1991, Rabbi Elon Feldman asked me if I would undertake to help with the Gittin matters. I was a Yadin Yadin Musmach of YU, and I had done some Shemush and Gittin, and I, I volunteered my time, and I started to work with um, Rav Nata, who came to Atlanta to be Misader Gittin. At that time, or until that moment, my experience in Gittin had been limited mostly to um, learning the Sugyas, um, rather than the kind of regular and intense shimush that comes from participation in Cedar Haget. And um, uh, I was Mishamish with Rav Nata for a number of years in Cedar Haget, and the relationship continued for many, many, many years. Rav Nata was four things to me, and it's worth articulating them. First and foremost, he was an incredibly... Um, learned person in the details of the Rishonim. Ravnata knew a huge amount, knows a huge amount. Second of all, unlike many other people who had an incredible breadth of knowledge in the Rishonim, Ravnata, like Rav Moshe Feinstein, was comfortable being Machriya Shailas. Was comfortable being Machriya Shailas. And just because he knew that there were seven views in the Rishonim didn't stop him from telling you what was the halacha lamaisa out there um, that he both endorsed and believed in. He knew both the variety of views and what he thought was the correct view, sometimes sometimes he didn't hesitate to boil his theoretical knowledge down to practical applications. Third of all, he was a man of the people, and he understood um, the need to relate to people to get his job done. One day, I was driving him back to the Atlanta airport so that he could fly back to Memphis, and he's sitting in the car as I start the engine, and he's reading the paper. And um, I look over, and I see he's reading the sports section. So I turned to him and I said, Rabbi Greenblatt, that's what I always called him, do you follow sports? 
And he looked at me and said, of course I follow sports. And I said, well, can you tell me please why you follow sports? And he said, Michael, um, we're Masadre Gittin. And the most important thing in Cedar Aged is learning to diffuse tension. And you don't want to talk to people about why they're getting divorced or why their spouse is getting divorced. And you don't want to talk to them about how the stock market is doing because sometimes it's up and sometimes it's down. But nothing works better in the South than asking them about what do they think of the Braves or the Falcons. And if you're going to ask them what they think about the Braves and the Falcons, you yourself have to know um, what's going on with the Braves and the Falcons. And so as I come to a city and as I go to the next city, I open up the sports section and I read about the local teams that are playing now in case the get turns tense and we need a distraction. I should have something to talk about. He understood people. Not every Isha Halakha understands the Isha football that are frequently balabatim in our community. Rav Nata was a man of the people. He wasn't in his culture or mannerisms elitist. Um, he didn't think that the Amcha was uneducated or illiterate or unworthy of respect. And he strove to be part of the community um, that he was involved in leading and not a distant elitist leader who read um, Plato while everybody else was reading the sports section. If everybody was reading the sports section, he was going to take a glance at the sports section as well. And finally, and most importantly, he was deeply connected um, to the culture of the United States, which he followed intensely and understood it was important. Just like he was a, a person of the Orthodox Jewish community and he followed our Balabatim and what they were doing, he thought it was important for people like him to follow what was going on in America and to understand cultural norms. And it was not unusual for me when I was speaking to him, he was close to 40 years my elder, to discover that he was aware of cultural trends that I wasn't aware of. And that he was following norms that were farther ahead of the curve than I could see. Um, and, um, and he sought to be part of the American community generally um, and understand what was going on out there. He was not a person who stuck his head um, deep in the sand and only did uh, Torah. He was a person who lived in a real community and who had real friends and who saw the struggles of a real life and the need to earn a living. This was not a small part of Rav Nata. This was who he was. Rav Moshe also, of course, Rav Nata, of course, also had a deep, incredible, passionate relationship with his Rebbe, Rav Moshe Feinstein. It's hard to express the level of love Rav Nata felt to Rav Moshe. And not just love, but this kind of deep intellectual aspiration. He saw in Rav Moshe uh, everything he thought he wanted to be. And he continuously asked when he confronted hard halacha questions, what would Rav Moshe do? 
By the time I was doing Shemush with Rav Nata, Rav Moshe was not among the living. So Rav Nata could ask this in his head. But it's no secret that throughout Rav Nata's lifetime, um, he spoke to Rav Moshe. Um, Talmidim of Rav Moshe observed to me that he was one of the few in the 60s and 70s who Rav Moshe spoke to as a peer. Rav Moshe had legions of Talmidim. But there was a small group of people who, when Rav Moshe was already a Yoshe Rosh, he spoke to as if they were also Yoshe Rosh. And Rav Nata was in that group. Rav Moshe thought Rav Nata was um, among the leading halachic lights in America. And I have no doubt that, um, that Rav Moshe was correct. Rav Nata was among the leading halachic lights in America an expert in Kashras, an expert in Evan Ezer matters from the first simon to the very last simon, and a person who was comfortable sitting in a variety of Hoshin Mishpat matters of through and through. And Rav Nata was acutely aware of the difference between the Din and the Minnow. And he understood that there were times and places in Evan Ezer matters where it was appropriate to get rid of the minog. I was involved in a get once in which we had an urgent need for a shaliach l'kabbalah. And Rav Nata appointed a shaliach l'kabbalah and I sort of raised my eyes. And Rav Nata said, don't you raise your eyes. It may, the minog is not to do a shaliach l'kabbalah, but the din is you're not supposed to leave a woman in a guna. And this is the way we're going to solve this problem. Rav Nata was a powerful, is a powerful, Halachic intellect. And you see this in his tshuva about Bishal Akum, which when I spoke to Rav Nata about, Rav Nata said, oh, that's not my tshuva. That's Rav Moshe Feinstein's tshuva. And indeed, when you collect the writings of Rav Nata Greenblatt, it's not there. Um, it is found in volume one of Mesorah, the OU publication. Um, and it is a tshuva that Rabbi Nata Greenblatt wrote um, in the name of Rav Moshe Feinstein. It's printed on page 93 and 94 that I spoke to Rav Nata about once in passing. And Rav Nata said, no, this is not important for me. I had nothing to do with it. I was just um, the conduit for Rav Moshe. And I, um, I sweetly laughed and I said, of course, Rav Moshe calls me also to dictate tshuvas every once in a while. And he, he laughed. He understood that he had a special relationship with Rav Moshe. Um, Rav Moshe wasn't in the habit of dictating tshuvas. He wasn't in the habit of uh, telling other people what they should say. But in this case, um, the question was um, whether egg rolls were subject to the prohibition of Bishul Akum. And Rav Nata repeats um, the tshuva that he discussed with Rav Moshe, and he wrote it out in the conversation with Rav Moshe, and then he notes that he went back um, and he wrote it out, Katavti Maran Feinstein. I wrote it 
with the uh, consent of Rav Moshe Feinstein, but after Shekatavti, and after I wrote it, Karati Yitzelofanov, I read it for him word by word, Vamar Shekatavti Karai, and he said, I wrote it correctly. Um, Ravnata here relays Rav Moshe Feinstein's um, uh, otherwise unpublished view of Vishalakum, which is that the prohibition of Vishalakum in general only weakly applies in a factory setting. And it does not apply, Rav Moshe felt, in a factory setting in which the food is not only manufactured in a factory, but it's manufactured by a machine in a factory where the non-Jew is just operating the machine, but the machine essentially makes the food. That the postkim who are arguing about a factory from 200 years ago or even earlier, like it all goes back to a Ra'ah ra and the Benekabayas, um, where the Ra'ah is inclined to think that Bishal Akum doesn't come in a factory at all, going back uh, uh, seven or 800 years to Spain, where there's no connection between the maker of the food and the eater of the food. And Ramosha's point goes as follows. Even if you reject the medieval and pre-modern conversation about Bishalaku, and you accept that it applies in a factory setting in Barcelona in the year 1300, where I'll have a factory that's making food, but the non-Jews are themselves lining up and making the food by hand, there's an enormous change um, in modern times, which is, you will have factories that are manufacturing food, um, which is essentially untouched by human hands. The non-Jew might be operating the machinery. Somebody has to be operating the machinery, certainly in the time of Rav Moshe's tshuva. But that's a sh enough of a change from the rules of Bishalakum, combined with the fact that there's absolutely no possible connection between the person who's manufacturing the food and the eater to permit um, Bishal Akum in this case. And Rav Moshe's tshuva has even more and greater applications in modern times, where if you'll step into a factory that's manufacturing something, you'll encounter a factory process that's the size of a football field automated by a computer where the non-Jews are sitting behind a console and um, controlling the machinery by dint of the internet. Um, and Ravosha's point is, is that that is certainly not governed by um, the prohibition of Bishal Aku. I had a long and elaborate conversation with Ravnata about this in the early 90s. And um, Ravnata's basic point um, in defense of Ramosha. And Ravnata was 100% sure that Ramosha was correct. And he wasn't just saying that because he was his Rebbe. He was simply sure that this was analytically the 
the derech hayashar among the rishonim. Bishul akum is parametered by two ideas. It's parametered by um, what really is bishul, and the rabbis imposed a more narrow, limited understanding of what is bishul for bishul akum than they did for um, what is bishul for Hilchus Shabbos. And secondly, by what kind of food items um, are likely to induce chastas, intermarriage. And Rav Nata's point is, is that all of the limitations that we have on the prohibition of bishul akum, food suitable for a king, or something that can be eaten raw, these are not definitions of bishul. These are essentially definitions of food where the connection between the food and the reality of chasnas is very small. Um, you might actually ponder marrying into a family that does delicious Texas barbecues. If you like Texas barbecues, it's an art and um, they're hard to find. But once I'm dealing with a product which is easily eaten raw, I don't say to myself, I need to find somebody to cook it. And I don't say to myself, I need to find somebody who's going to eat, who's going to cook peanuts. Because peanuts are not ola and shulchan malachim. It's not as serious enough food to contemplate leaving the faith. And you see, Rav Nata said, that these are all driven by the reality concerns of chasnas of will this activity have any likelihood of leading to intermarriage more than any other random activity. The rabbis recognized that drinking alcohol with non-Jews produced intermarriage because alcohol is an inducement to sexuality that a person regrets. And they recognize that food has some characteristics of the same way. Playing soccer with non-Jews could also produce intermarriage, but the rabbis didn't prohibit all social activity. Mekachu Memkar with non-Jews could also produce intermarriage. The question is, is this any more than Mekachu Memkar likely to produce intermarriage? And Rav Nata felt Rav Moshe's basic point, which was already beginning to be true. He didn't say China. He said to me, do you think that goods manufactured in the Philippines, in a machine in the Philippines, is going to produce chasnas in the United States? Um, his exact point was as follows. As the manufacturing process automates, and the non-Jew who's merely controlling the machine is technically the mevashel for certain purposes, the idea that there's some sort of connection between that and chasnus seemed so distant and attenuated and far-fetched that Rav Moshe was not prepared to say the change in manufacturing from handmade products to fully automated manufacturing wasn't a great enough change to obviate the application of Bishalakum. No different than microwave food obviates the application of Bishalakum according to a great number of posts. It's that the change is great enough that the rabbinic decree doesn't apply in its reason. And Rav Nata felt that Rav Moshe's basic insight here 
wasn't that this isn't visual. It's that as there's a steep disconnect from the manufacturer to the buyer, and it's combined with the fact that the visual is automatic enough um, that it's untouched by the non-Jew, the prohibition of visual akum doesn't really apply anymore. And I know that there are many countless times where Rav Nata has injected into his contemporary halachic analysis a crisp understanding of the social reality around him in order to argue not for an updating of the principles of halacha, but for a novel application of the halachic principles to the reality of our times. I have in my possession a tshuva by him in which he does this on some issues of tzniut, which is not for this conversation. And I know he said this with regard to the use of anesthesia for Mila as well, and a variety of other areas. Rav Nata perceived himself very much to be a person whose mission in life was to take the well-established halachic rules and apply them to the reality of our times. Um, he was, let me add, as we all know, more lenient on Kedushe Taos matters than many of his contemporaries. And it's no secret that Rav Nata felt that this was the approach of Rav Moshe, more or less because as women develop their own economic base and they work for a living, they're less inclined to take highly problematic husbands than they once were. And that thus the grounds for Kedusha Tov were expanded by Rav Moshe. And when I encountered, when I shared with him an observation from one of my Rebbeim, that Rav Moshe's list is the exclusive list, and that we shouldn't extend beyond Rav Moshe, Rav Nata said he thought that that was mistaken. Rav Moshe was taking the modern condition of women and applying the old principles to the modern condition. And there's no reason to believe that the modern condition in 1960 necessarily reflects the modern condition in 1990. And indeed, he wrote me a tshuva on a Kedusha Tov's matter well past the year 2000 with a little bit of a chiddush relating to drug use and the contemporary times in light of Nancy Reagan's Just Say No campaign and the social unacceptability of heavy drug use and how no woman would marry such a person. All of these are extraordinary applications. This tshuva on Bishul Akum is in Rav Moshe's name, but shows the handwriting of Rav Nata Greenblatt. And I'm sure... If we were standing in the room where Rav Moshe was dictating to Rav Nata, Rav Moshe was not dictating. Rav Moshe and Rav Nata were discussing. And Rav Nata's letter, and there was a give and take and a masa and matan, Rav Nata was not anybody's secretary. And although he would have been happy to transcribe Rav Moshe's tshuvas, when Rav Moshe needed a tshuva transcribed, 
that was done by somebody else. Rav Nata here didn't transcribe Rav Moshe's tshuva. Rav Nata digested and turned it into a beautiful paragraph summarizing Rav Moshe's view as it was developed in conversation with Rav Nata. And then he went back to Rav Moshe and he read it to Rav Moshe and Rav Moshe said, yes, that's an excellent summary of the ideas we exchanged. And this is an important idea. Rav Nata applied ancient Torah principles to modernity with a sense of verber as to what the modernity really, really, really was. And this was an incredible activity. A vigorous conversation with Rav Nata a decade ago in the Atlanta airport. I was traveling somewhere and he was traveling somewhere and we met in Concourse A with a little bit of time to spare. And Rav Nata turned to me and said, you have some time to talk. And I said, of course. And we sat in uh, two chairs in Terminal A in Delta, him going somewhere I don't know where and me going somewhere. And honestly, I don't remember where. And he discussed with me at great length um, a problem of English pronunciation in Cedar Haget and how he thought that the English pronunciation of a set of consonants was evolving and he was pondering how we should process this through. And he wondered if I, who he called a Southern gentleman, pronounced some English words and how I thought about how they should be spelled in Gittin. Since he and I, he joked with me, were both Southern men of wonderful lineage, me an Atlantan and him a Memphisan. But Ravnato lived very intensely in the real world. He listened to people around him and he processed the information and he lived in the reality. And that this was so much an important part of who he was to live in the present. Um, I just want to stop and share one other conversation I had with Rav Nata. Once many years ago, when I was just chatting with him casually, I asked him what Rav Soloveitchik was like in the late 30s, early 40s, when Rav Nata knew him. I think Rav Nata was for many years the last surviving member of the Rav's Boston Cola. He's been the last surviving member of the Rav's Boston Cola for 30 years, I suspect. A long time. And Rav Nata looked at me and said as follows. He, he said it very American. He was clearly in an American mood. He said, man, oh man. I remember that phrase. I haven't heard a Gadol B'Torah say, man, oh man, ever before. There was nobody as sharp in the room as the Rav was in that era. The Rav was fully in command of everything. And I, as a young man, was terrified um, to ever say anything. And yet the Rav deeply was concerned about every thought I had and helped me foster my own Limura Torah um, in my own unique style. The Rav was confident in his style and encouraged every one of the Talmudim in that kolo to be confident in uh, their own style. That, he said, was who Rabbi Soloveitchik was. He didn't call him Rabbi Soloveitchik. That was who Rabbi Soloveitchik was. And he wanted me to grow up to be a Ben Torah, confident in my own style and not mimicking the Rav style. Rav Nata is the foremost Torah authority in America. 
um, at this very moment. And we all hope and pray that he should recover from your haoras and for, for especially the personal recollections. I do want to say, however, that um, <laughs> that uh, as someone who grew up with Rav Nota as really a second father and is still very, very close to him, I was aware of a uh, of, of a massive amatan that occurred between Rav Moshe and Rav Nota, and I mentioned this to you before we started recording that that occurred in Rav Moshe's hospital room during the last period of Rav Moshe's life. It might not have been the illness that Nebuchadnezzar ended up expiring from, but it was a period where, because of Rav Moshe's fragile situation, the OU was not able to get a psak from anyone else. So Rav Nota was, was the Rosh HaMachshirim of the OU, as you know. This was a title that although he lived in Memphis, Tennessee, he traveled all over the country for the OU as the Rav HaMachshir or the Rosh HaMachshir. I'm not sure what sort of, uh, what sort of invented title they gave him, but I, I know other Rabbonim after him have had that. I think his son, Yankel, also at one time was on that, had that title as well for some time, although, right. So Rav Nota was asked to do something which no one else could do, which was to get into Rav Moshe. And I heard it from Rav Nota's children that Rav Nota was able to get in and spoke to Rav Moshe. And, and then Rav Moshe, Rav, Rav Nota went back to his hotel room and wrote up the tshuva and returned to Rav Moshe's hospital room and read him what he had written. And Rav Nota said, and Rav Moshe said, that's exactly it. That's exactly the way it should be or the way I would have said it. So the story, I, I would say, is remarkably similar to what we have in Rabbi Ganak's situation. He is an OU person who needed something from the OU. I, 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 I would, and I tried to uh, corroborate this. So I think if, if, if my theory is correct, then I think there's, we just need to alter a little bit about what you were saying. That, yes, you're right. Generally, Rav, Nota, uh, Rav Moshe was not in the habit of dictating. But I think over here, there was a, a situation where the OU recognized, if this was indeed the case, that it was Rav Nota who could do what no one else could do. Because of his connection to Rav Moshe, familial, other people, Mati Tendler and others could say no to, the family could say no to. Rav Nota had Drisus Haregel to Rav Moshe, even in the most uh, severe situations. And I think if it's, I, I think that needs uh, just something that I wanted to add uh, to you as far as that goes. I will, I will discover uh, if I can uh, about that. Um, I, I would love to hear more, but even though all of that is true, I think if you read what Rav Nota writes, He's not transcribing Rav Moshe. He writes, He says, I am presenting this here in the agreement with Rav Moshe And I read it back to him. And he said, Not you transcribe my words. I don't think Rav Moshe dictated this tshuva to Rav Nachman. I didn't say that, but I'm saying right. it does. It, it does. It does align with the story. The other thing That's I correct. I, the other thing we do have with us, uh, my good friend uh, Benny, Rabbi Sommerfeld, and I think if Rabbi Sommerfeld caught the gist of what we we're talking about. Uh, this uh, psak is not really makubel by the OU, right? The idea of allowing. Um, or is it? That's what I'd like to know. The idea of allowing 
uh, factory produced cooking that is completely different than the tzuras habishal of Chazal, allowing it and not uh, and, and not considering the the sometimes with shasat chak or as a sniflahak and so forth. Uh, they don't rely on it straight out, but uh, but they okay. do rely on it in, in certain circumstances. So, so Rabbi Summerfield, you were familiar with this tshuva, right? With this psalm. Yes, 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 yes. So, so sometimes if they need to, they they will say kosher. You, you can eat it because right. Uh, and in bedieved circumstances, they will uh, they will be simachanet, or, or or they will use it as a in in a in a case of Suffolk, they will use it as a sniflahakol and so forth. Even though you know Suffolk bishulakam is uh, not all that problematic in the first place, but you know. Right, which is interesting, but that's definitely not Rav, the way Rabbi Bruid and the, the, the sense you get from the letter, right? From Rav Nota. Rav Nota says, you don't no, say no, it, sounds, it, it sounds, yeah, you know, it sounds like they, they thought this was the Katrina, you know? uh, and, 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 and certainly the impression you get from reading it is that they thought it's the Katrina. But, uh, you know, things that are published in Masora don't necessarily make it uh, to, uh, you know, the OU now is Saimachan Rabbi Herschel and, you know, so, so, and Rabbi Belsky. So, you know, if, if they didn't agree with certain things, they, it doesn't matter that they were published in Masora. They, I wasn't, you know, God forbid, criticizing the OU. I'm so sorry. I didn't no, 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 no. I'm the, I'm the troublemaker, Rabbi Broid. Okay. I'm, the one who, I'm the one who's just saying that even though this is, and I have no reason to doubt, because I'll tell you one thing, I've never, Rav Nota was never, ever, someone who said anything except that was the exact searing, complete, bitter, uh, powerful truth. That is who Rav Nata is. So I will tell you that I know that Rav Nata was a and it's interesting that the OU, either because of fear or pressure from the Chesidisha postgame, it's, the... it's not pressure. They're uh, they're engaged in trying to be shovel homefish. So you know, it's uh, as a business decision, it's not unreasonable. Even if they think that it's uh, in fact valid, they might not uh, do it because they want uh, various other people to rely on them who wouldn't rely uh, on this. Uh, I, I, it's, it's okay, you're right. Pressure is the wrong word, Rabbi Summerfield. I guess yeah, what I meant was what I meant was this was too big of a of, of a cla- uh, too big of a nice. To just say, okay, we're giving the Hechsher Lukatrila Lukatrila. They, they were afraid. Yeah, it's not an unreasonable. I mean, even if they think the halacha follows a Moshe, it's not unreasonable them to, 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 uh, to include uh, uh, something that will be uh, shoved to, uh, to other cries. And then it's, it's I should tell you also. Again, perfectly reasonable decision for them to make. Yeah, I mean, yes. Robert, it's disrespectful. It's, uh, there are other cautious organizations that actually I heard from um, the heads of those organizations. Uh, and you know that these people are, were also Tamina Chachamim, who actually told me the exact same thing. Um, and that is what some of these, I don't know if they're lesser, but some other kashrut organizations in the United States actually are so mech on this, um, and <laughs> still Lamaisa. So it still is, okay. it, it still is in use. And, um, and especially in places, as you know, that Rav Nota used to visit, like... Mm-hmm way out, you can't get certain products in any other places. And sometimes, okay. so therefore what I would say is, it's, 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 it's something which is, it's kedai to know about for people who live in places where they're not able to get the type of products that have the mahudr dika uh, that they should know that this, that this psak is out there. And it gives Rabbi, me... during COVID, was it something that was helpful to be able to avoid needing to be there in person during COVID when you couldn't get places? You, you talking to Rabbi Broid or myself? I think it was something that people relied on, Vidi Evans. Yes, I do. 
I do. And by the way, it's something that people rely on outside of the United States, in Asia particularly, where lots of kashras are not up to the same standard that they are up to in the United States, in Vishalaku matters, where you have large um, uh, factories that are manufacturing products that are naturally kosher, but pose Vishalaku questions. No doubt about that. Um, I, no I also, I, as actually, I was involved in a factory that we went from the OU. Uh, it was a modern factory that the Derech Abishal was completely different than the way it was Bishas Chazal. And we had, a, because of the constant cooking, it, 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 it was Nitzrach HaMashkiach Tmidi, and we had three or four Mashkichim constantly there. Uh, when it went over to a different uh, kashras organization, you know, we were all out of a job. We, none of us were able to do it. But what I'm trying to point out is I think another aspect, Rabbi Paul, was that um, it was also a way for mashkichim to be able, in other words, not being makabal this kula, helped other mashkichim have a shtikola parnosa because they were necessary to be on site to run, to keep the ovens running. On, on these big factories. And I think, and Benny, Rabbi Sommerfeld, I think here, I don't know if it's pressure, but there was definitely, they didn't want to shake up the, uh, uh, you know, the bottle that much and say, okay, right? And because and, I can tell you many of these mashkichim who were there full time, this was the way they were mafarnas themselves because they needed to be on site and they were able to, to, to be able to have, uh, to be able to be mafarnas their families that were in Eretz Yisrael. So I, I think that might've been part of it as well. In terms of not impossible, not impossible. I have no idea. And and, and I will tell you, Rabbi Broid, in this regard, and I think I've told this to you before. I grew up with Rav Nath in Memphis. We had a shul in Memphis that was a uh, a former Orthodox shul, or was by its um, uh, um, its constitution an Orthodox shul, and it was situated in an area that there was not one Orthodox Jew basically there that was mobile to walk within five or six miles. So what they did was uh, they arranged with a guy before Shabbos uh, to have this to have people be picked up by a shuttle. And it was a number of old Jews that were living there and the motor was kept running and they, 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 it stopped very, like, oh, not completely. The person got on, and then this bus came and brought these people to the minion. The, mm-hmm. the, the uh, rabbi was a musmach of, of Beis Medish Futaira, and he, uh, he was a, a Talmud of, of, of Rabbonim Gedolim in, in, in what was later called Skoki Yeshiva. And when Rav Nata heard about it, it was happening in Memphis, Rav Nata says, look, <laughs> he says, Be'etzeh but look, as is Aved for for someone a younger man, so been episa parnosa for a young person to have some sort of parnosa, I'm not going to go and fight it, because right. in, and I should tell you eventually the end of that story, that show ended up merging because they had a, they had money, <laughs> although they didn't have people, they merged with the other show which was called the Anchi Sfard, mm-hmm. and you and you might have been in Memphis and known about the Anchi Sfard, Rabbi right. Lloyd. So the Anche yeah. Sfard merged with the Beth El, which was that shul, the Beth El Emeth. The Beth right. El Emeth Anche Sfard merged. And that rabbi, who was mm-hmm. Nebuch, having to 
get people schlepped in by the bus, ended up becoming the rabbi of the Anshas Far at Beth Alemet for many years, uh-huh. and being able to have much more than just uh, Parnosa Bidiyevet. So Rav Nota, in a sense, really had a, uh, as you said, uh, a gisha that was unique. And you, you had to have Rav Nota's plates as, uh, as far as that goes, I would say. <laughs> yes, that's correct. Like okay. Rav Moshe, Rav Nota. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.